Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on stolen land here at Triple R. I pay respects to elders of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the land of which this broadcast reaches. I extend that respect to First Nations people listening this afternoon and I acknowledge the stories that we tell today and every day exist within the context of First Nations oral storytelling traditions which have been shared and yarned about for many, many thousands of years. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I'll be joined by writer, photographer and artist Sarah Walker to speak about her new essay collection called The First Time I Thought I Was Dying. It is a meditation on bodies under capitalism, on our mental and physical health and about really learning to occupy a body from the inside out and not just the outside in. This one is out through the University of Queensland Press. And later in the show, I'll be joined by documentary maker Georgina Savage. She's the creative producer and editor on a brand new podcast called The Trap. It's hosted by writer and researcher Jess Hill. And The Trap is a podcast about love, abuse and power. And it really asks the questions, why does domestic abuse persist and why do people become abusive and what can we do to prevent it? It is from the Victorian Women's Trust and as I'm sure you can hear from that introduction, it just a bit of a heads up that the show today will contain discussion around domestic abuse and domestic violence in Australia. So listen with care. If that's not something you're up for today, that's totally understandable. But I'm very excited to chat to these amazing women. We live in a world that expects us to be constantly in control of ourselves, yet our, bo- our bodies and minds have other ideas. The First Time I Thought I Was Dying is a new essay collection that meditates on bodies under capitalism, on mental health and physical health, and what it means to occupy a body from the inside out and not just the outside in. Walkley-nominated writer, artist and photographer Sarah Walker is the author, and she joins me on the line now. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. No worries at all, man. So good to chat to you. Sarah, this collection begins um, with the words, if my thoughts had a genre, it would be body horror. For as long as I can remember, I've been suspicious of my body. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think this is an experience that I think is pretty universal uh, for all of us kind of living in the the weirdness of late capitalism. Um, I grew up with this very strong sense that at some point I would learn to control my body enough that I would be able to control kind of everything in the world around me. And it's taken a very long time and a lot of anxiety to realize that 
actually that's not the case and it probably shouldn't be the case but yeah for such a long time and in so many arenas of my life when it comes to physical health and weight and sex and it's my job because it is so you know like visually focused I'm so um, I spend so much time kind of thinking about a body as a thing that needs to be tidied and and um, made controlled and neat. Uh, and yeah, this book was kind of about starting to question that that idea and to start asking, well, why do we why do we think we need to control ourselves and how can we embrace our own chaos? Mm. Yeah, this collection really spans a journey of body reclamation in so many ways you know as you said you really interrogate the ways that we as people as animals as humans really push back against capitalism and you know the container that it tries to keep us in can you tell me a bit more about those overarching ideas for the book and I suppose when you first really started thinking about them yeah absolutely so I kind of started um really knuckling down into the writing of the book in January last year. Uh, And then in March last year, obviously the pandemic arrived and then uh, my mum also died. And that was this kind of strange coalescing period where, I mean, for one thing, it meant that everything else in my life was cancelled because I work primarily as a theatre photographer and the theatre has done poorly in the uh, the pandemic. Um, So I had a lot of time to really focus on it. And I realised that so much of my experience of grief was so physical in a way that totally shocked me. I was having all these conversations with people going, look, I I fully intellectually process this event and yet my body is still absolutely freaking out. I don't know what's happening and sort of had to start thinking of myself as this kind of holistic being instead of this kind of brain floating around in a, in a, container that was misbehaving all the time and it really led the way that I started thinking about um, a lot of the different uh, aspects of of art and and life that are covered by the book starting to be like what is the central fear here it's a fear of being out of control and I think that's a very it's a very ubiquitous fear I think we're all kind of we spend so much time feeling guilty that our bodies aren't behaving all the time and they get sick and that they they make smells and noises and there's so many things that our bodies do that I think we're kind of trying to suppress and be like no 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 don't do that Mm. yeah I feel like nothing has taught us that more than obviously living in the pandemic the last 18 months the pressure on people's bodies you know even just now going back into or sorry going into an extended lockdown it is such a embodied feeling and experience Mm. of you know, living through these things, it is hard. And it's, I think what you've done in a really interesting way is kind of pinpoint the moments in which you almost connect to your body or your body feels perhaps more alive than, um, you know, it has in other moments. I'd love to, I'd love to really talk about your arts practice as a photographer, you know, your opening essay, kind of explores how your worldview or your view of your body is kind of informed by this visual medium and almost like learning to master the visual narrative of the way that your body is represented. Can you tell me how photography has changed the way that you view your body as as an instrument? Yeah, absolutely. I think probably one of the biggest lessons of of my career as a photographer is learning that the uh, the aphorism the camera doesn't lie is really not true because a camera is a machine operated by a human and humans are inherently subjective and I figured out very quickly I started um, for, uh, photography mostly taking self portraits I I took a self portrait every day for a year when I was trying to figure out how to use my camera and nothing teaches you about 
the liability of photography more than photographing yourself over and over, being like, ah, ha, ha, if I light myself from this angle and I turn my head like that, I all of a sudden have a much more defined chin and, ah, wait, if I pose like this, my body looks totally different. I think that's something that as people spend more time with kind of social media profiles, learning to photograph ourselves. Like when I started photographing people, a lot of people had never photographed themselves. And now that's, that's very different. Like most people, you know, will be like, I know how to make me look good in a way that makes sense to my brain. And so there's this real kind of tension when you're photographing somebody and you're taking their control of their own, um, uh, the way that they have to see it visually away from them. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really informed a lot of the ways that I think about my own body because I'm like, right, so all of those images that you see online, they're not, they're not real. They're, they're a kind of momentary facet and they're deeply manipulated. And, and my job also involves, to an, a certain extent, having to Photoshop people's faces and bodies. I have um, pretty strict rules about what I will do to another person. I, like, I don't do kind of like fake tuning. I don't change the shape of people's bodies. Uh, but I spend a lot of time just, you know, like tidying up acne and like making people look a bit less tired. And there's so much kind of ethical complexity in that, in the, the sort of power that comes when you wield a camera and you represent someone in a 2D mode. Hmm. It is very interesting, as you say, as people are becoming, uh, more and more people, I suppose, are becoming photographers in the sense that they learn how to control the visual narrative over their lives. And I'm mm. interested in, I suppose, that digital literacy that you have as a photographer, perhaps being able to really understand uh, the that, it, that photography can be a tool. And as you said, there's no, um, you know, there's no truth. It is all subjective. Can you kind of speak mm. to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the, one of the things that has been really uh, kind of heartening about my practice is there's, 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 there's several things that um, kind of surprise me as a photographer. One is that as people uh, become more digitally literate, people are using apps that do things to images that I can't do with 10 years of kind of photography training. Like I'll look at face-tuned images sometimes and be like, tell you what, if it weren't for that kind of wobbly fence behind that person, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd buy it. Thank God for the wobbly fence. Um, but, uh, but there's also this, uh, you know, there's these kind of ethical complexities. But there's also this wonderful joy with being a photographer that often comes when I'm photographing people in very theatrical uh, modes. So, um, I talk in the book about photographing a drag performer who um, he looked at the back of the camera and went, oh, those are my mother's cheekbones. You can't see them in real life, but, but you found them with the light. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of sense of, of unearthing and shifting and reframing, which can be really beautiful. Um, like some of the most really moving photo shoots I've done have been for non-binary folks um, who are able to kind of, uh, yeah, together we're able to find a physical representation of them visually that feels closer to how they want to be perceived or how they might feel inside. And it sort of can be a way to, to get around gender dysphoria, mm. which which is just so, it's so amazing having someone be like, oh my God, that's not how I see myself. And you saw something else in me. And, that, and that's something that I'm sort of trying to move towards. Like that is just so, so wonderful and so thrilling. Mm, that is so special. And, you know, mm. talking about this kind of visual practice that you've been working and, and living in for many, many years, at the start of each essay, yeah. you do have a very poetic snapshot of each essay, a visual representation of what you're writing about. Can you tell me mm. the decision to incorporate your kind of visual work um, throughout these uh, series of essays? 
Yeah, that came from the um, the publishers who were kind of like, hey, um, you're also a photographer. Do you want there to be photos in the book? And I was like, oh, that really good. And yeah, sure. And so they're all self-portraits. There's eight um, essays in the book and there's eight self-portraits, most of which were shot on a really hot day in my back room where I was like sweating and like running to the camera to try to take another self-portrait and then contorting myself and being like, no, I'm going to do it again. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, the, the outcome photos are very like quiet and calm, but uh, the process of shooting them was, was very, I actually don't take that many self-portraits now. And so I'm like, oh, God, this is what paid me up. Um, but yeah, it feels really nice to, you know, because the writing is so um, sort of centered around my bodily experience, which is then supported by kind of all these anecdotes and research and, and the sort of humor and laughter. I feel mm. like I should also sort of clarify that the book is also very, you know, funny and light. And one of the ways I've found to be very powerful for dealing with all this kind of complexity and body grief and shame is through laughter and kind of joy. Um, but yeah, having, having those images feels like a really nice way to just kind of you know, center center the uh, the body in the in the writing in the book as an object. Mm. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Sarah Walker all about her collection of essays. The first time I thought I was dying, Sarah. You know, as an artist uh, who works across form and discipline, you know, I'm interested when mm. you kind of are writing about some hard truths. Uh, also, very much there's light moments in there that kind of scrape right to the bone of how we live, particularly in the sense of the last kind of 18 months of, of obviously change that and also you've spoken about yeah. some quite of quite personal traumas that have happened in your life your mum mm. passing away I'm interested when you're kind of writing this um has the writing of this book shifted or changed your relationship uh, I suppose to your body in comparison to I suppose your other artistic outputs yeah I think um the nice thing about writing is that it's just so it's so internal like my partner um uh often kind of describes watching me just go into this totally different sort of dimension, which it feels to me like walking downstairs in my own head. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, cool, all right, I'll see you in a bit and sort of go down into the basement and rummage around in a bit. Um, and, yeah, like I think I've sort of said a, a few times around this book that um, you have the least ability to see your own narratives and your own kind of like the things that you don't, uh, you're not good at or you don't understand. It's really easy to look at a friend and be like, you've got an issue with your parents. And um, it wasn't until quite late in the writing process that I went, oh, this essay that I'm writing where I'm talking about how I don't like being in control, I think that's like the fundamental concern in my life. Oh, my God, this whole book's about it. My partner was like, yeah. What do you mean? Like, obviously, duh. You've been writing this book for months. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think partly now when I have a moment where I'm feeling really kind of heightened or revolting, there's a, I feel like I'm getting better slowly at going, okay, maybe we'll just, maybe we'll just lean in. Maybe what happens if we just lean into it instead of trying to run away from it? Cause I've, uh, I'm very practiced at the running away and it doesn't <laughs> seem to fix anything. So, <laughs> so now I'm trying very tentatively to kind of treat my life like a bit of a weird drug trip and be like, okay, what's, what's this trying to teach me instead of being like, get me off the ride. Mm. <laughs> 
And I can imagine that would be quite difficult when you are holding this mirror up to yourself um, in this very intimate way for a long period of time. I love that image of you walking down the stairs of your brain. Um, it is, yeah, it's, it's, it's very good. Um, you know, something that uh, is on the back of this book is one of the quotes by Jacinta Parsons, who's read this book, and it says, mm. it's a stunning portrait of a body as captured by the eye of a true artist. And I just wanted to, I suppose, grab onto that a little bit. I, I really do feel like you are a true artist in, in the sense that you have all of these kind of artistic practices that feed your work mm. and you speak about your work as a photographer, obviously you're a writer. Um, you also speak mm. about um, theatre making and I suppose how that has played into the way that you think about your body and it's, you know, it is an embodied practice. I'm interested mm. in, I suppose, your conception of all of these kind of threads of, of artistic output that you've um, been crafting over, you know, over the years and I suppose where you see this book and your writing fitting into that do they all feel yeah, like yeah, one yeah. in the same or it's interesting when so I did a master of fine art uh which was across 2018 2019 and I walked in and I said all I know is that I don't want to take photos um for a bit I want to explore a different type of art practice and then all this text started coming into the work that I was doing this kind of like video work and installation work and sound work and um one of the staff said to me you are obsessed with language and you're obsessed with dialogue and I was like this artwork isn't there's no text in it she was like yeah but you've installed these two works facing each other they're talking to each other and I was like oh oh right so I feel like there's kind of this central thing in everything that I do about some sort of narrativization and of being aware that like when I when I go into photograph a play for example I'm not photographing the objective experience of the play. I'm kind of showing you what the play looks like through my eyes and my experience. And so writing feels like kind of in some sideways way a very natural um, extension of that way of being in the world, of kind of just opening a door and saying, so this is what I saw and this is what I thought about it. Maybe we can have a conversation about it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think just really leaning into your, yeah, your own experience and how you see the world. I, I yeah, I really relate to that. You know, Sarah, you've mm. kind of touched on this, but ultimately many of these essays really do boil down to that kind of tension between a desire to be in control and ultimately the body not um, allowing us to do that, you know. Mm. I'm interested when you are working in a form like writing that does require so much discipline and almost command over your ideas. I'm interested mm. in that interplay between the, the act of writing and, and almost the control of the subject matter that you're speaking about. How do you see that relationship? Yeah, it's, I, I find it so interesting talking to writers about how they write because I know some people who they sit down and they write for eight hours and they come out with 300 very carefully crafted words that are kind of edited on the page mm. and I'm the opposite of that I kind of like roll in and like throw down a couple of thousand words and then be like all right I'm leaving bye <laughs> uh and then so I do that for kind of an hour or two a day and then I find the editing very satisfying um because I guess yeah in a way it's taking what is quite chaotic this sort of outpouring of words and going, no, that doesn't work. Uh, ooh, but if that goes there, ooh, they kind of talk to each other. Like, there's, a, I find editing very, very, the precision of it very satisfying. Mm. And maybe that's kind of related in a, in a way, the, the taking of something that feels very chaotic and finding uh, something that feels quite controlled and, and, and elegant in there. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Sarah, it's been a pleasure to read your words um, and to chat to you. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. No worries. Thanks, Beth. 
Sarah Walker there speaking about her new essay collection called The First Time I Thought I Was Dying. It is out now through the University of Queensland Press. You are listening to Triple R. The Glass House is the name of the show. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Just a content warning for this next episode that we'll be, we'll be discussing domestic abuse and domestic violence in Australia. So please do listen with care. Family domestic and sexual abuse and violence is a major national health and welfare issue in this country that can have lifelong impacts for victims. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics in 2016, uh, over 3 million Australians have experienced emotional abuse from a partner. And The Trap is a new podcast that aims to tackle these issues head on. It's from the Victorian Women's Trust and The Trap is a new audio series about love, abuse and power and ask the questions, why does domestic abuse persist? Why do people become abusive? And what can we do to prevent it? Joining me to speak about it today, I have creative producer Georgina Savage. Georgina, thank you so much for your time today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. I know that you've got up at 4.30am for this interview, <laughs> so um Lots and lots of thanks. Um, so this podcast is about love, abuse, power. Can you tell me when this this project was first conceived of, what did you set out to do? Yeah, so this project sort of came off the back end of my first podcast series, Silent Waves, which was looking into, you know, the institution of the family as the first place that a lot of people experience sexual abuse. And so with a lot of the research that we were doing for that series, we sort of started to see that domestic abuse was just another one of these kind of invisible killers that was affecting so many families, obviously women being the primary victims, but children as well. And it's just really fascinated me that families are these places in which so much abuse occurs, and yet they're almost these fortresses that mm. society doesn't seem to feel like we can go into and examine in a really kind of honest way because they're protected by this notion that family secrets should be kept secret mm. and I obviously don't agree with that and I think that we need to start talking about these things in order to try to combat them. I couldn't agree more and I think you know in the wake of Me Too and over the last couple of years more and more, more and more stories are coming out and I think there's more of an understanding about, you know, that not not a lot of this stuff is new. It's just that people are perhaps um, accepting what's happened and, and what has been happening for a very long time. The, the Trap has two episodes out currently. And, you know, the first episode really, I think, challenges the listener to consider that domestic abuse is an issue that affects everyone. It's not just about the victims and the perpetrators, but it actually tells us something much deeper about us as people and the way that we live. Can you kind of speak to that idea a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that what we kind of have failed to grasp thus far is that domestic abuse is not an incident-based issue between a person having an 
a fight with their partner in which it gets out of hand and something happens. It's actually kind of like an intricate web of psychological, emotional trauma that's playing out because of many different societal circumstances and that can stem from childhood experiences that then plays out in patriarchy the way that we are socialized it plays out in our kind of crisis of um, self-esteem and sense of self-worth that then means that we then want to perpetuate abuse to kind of get power back and I think we need to start to examine all the different ways in which power and I guess trauma are playing out and how domestic abuse is actually a bit of a symptom of a deeper systemic issue. That's what the series, I suppose, the, the first episode is looking at kind of introducing you to these ideas and, and it's called setting the trap and it's sort of showing the way in which it's, it's introducing it. But the series itself, if you look at the body of work as the weeks progress, it starts with the intimate partner experience, but it starts to zoom out and out and out and really contextualizes this issue into kind of a way that is digestible, I think, for the listener to understand that it, this is a systemic issue. This is an issue that has roots in colonialism. This is an issue that has a lot to do with gender inequality, and it has to do with this concept of power over. Why do we feel that we need to have power over others instead of power with them? Mm -hmm. And how is that playing out in dynamics if we feel disempowered by, say, our economic system or, say, uh, the way in which kind of hierarchies in our work dynamics play out? Why do we then feel like we need to go and assert power over those that are, like, you know, at our disposal, I suppose, or minorities or people that are less powerful. And it's really kind of getting to the grips of how all of these different factors are piecing together. And I think it's I think it's so important because we see domestic abuse as this beast that is so untamable. But really when you start to break it down into these bite-sized pieces, you do get it. Mm. And it does start to feel slightly able to be tackled. Mm. I think that's what the first episode does kind of quite well is just trying to unpick why somebody would end up in this situation. Because I think if people haven't had personal experience with it, people, you know, people don't understand how you get there. It feels quite foreign to them. And I I do think that's something that you've done really well. I I do want to pick up on something you just said. I think it's um, Torna Pittman in the first episode who does um, liken elements of domestic abuse to kind of colonizing and to, um, uh, yeah, ideas of colonization and kind of going back to some of the root causes of this problem, which I really think is so important because as you said, it is, it's multiple things that are happening. There are multiple systems at play that cause this oppression um, to certain people in their homes. Can you kind of talk to me a little bit more about that idea that she brings up in the first episode? Yeah, so if you think about colonisation, especially in the Australian context, I mean, the the whole formation of the country of Australia before, you know, with the colonisers arriving was essentially a very, very brutal form of coercive control and abuse that has been playing out ever since. I mean, essentially, there was this kind of the ultimate gaslighting and claiming that the land was terra nullius in mm. the first place. Then, obviously, the horrific um, violence that occurred. But then, since then, 
there's also been this kind of systemic treatment of Indigenous people and people of colour in this country that very much replicates what you see in intimate partner relationships. And there's no, I suppose, it's, it's so kind of obvious when you start to look at the different tactics used by abusers to see that in the way that colonising countries do that to the people, the Indigenous people of those lands. And that is involved in, you know, taking children, claiming that they are unfit to be parents, making them dependent on that person financially or that institution or that concept financially, and then blaming them for that, not giving pathways to have power that is equal or, you know, sharing power or even, um, you know, giving that power back. Instead, it's this power over approach that mm. has been, you know, present ever since colonisers arrived in Australia. Absolutely. And if we look at the behaviour of colonisers, uh, the perpetrators of domestic abuse, you kind of start to see a little bit of a script that forms. Um, and, you know, particularly what I think this podcast has done well is you, when you really lay it out, it is, it's quite amazing how similar, obviously there's so many differences in these um, situations and nuances, but there is almost this kind of perpetrator handbook. There are common things that people, um, perpetrators do to kind of get people in these situations. You know, you kind of touched on coercive control. I think it's something that people are starting to understand more and more. But, you know, to really anchor this discussion, can you tell me what do you mean when we talk about coercive control? Yeah, so I guess coercive control is kind of at the heart of this entire issue for us and not for us, but I think at the heart of the issue, which is essentially this kind of systematic slow, methodical form of entrapping a victim into a situation in which they cannot leave the partner. And that can be really conscious in the case of kind of more sociopathic abusers or people who kind of choose choose their targets and, and you know, that links to kind of all different kinds of, um, you know, pickup artists and negging and all these other things in which people kind of go for someone and choose to abuse them over time. But the more common form is actually a little bit more, um, I guess, subconscious, I think, for, for a lot of perpetrators. They, they don't even know that they're doing it. The person doesn't even know they're being um, affected by it. But essentially, it is a, a form of different tactics that make one person have power and dominance over the other and it's using tactics of manipulation psychological damage um yeah you know slowly degrading their sense of self-worth their sense of independence isolating them from their friends making them financially dependent um you know physical abuse can be definitely a part of coercive control doesn't need to be and i think that's an important distinction because mm. when we think about domestic abuse we think obviously about the physical act but you know so so many people are in abusive relationships where physical abuse is not present maybe some sexual abuse is present because that spectrum seems to be getting more understood as well uh but essentially coercive control is a um, method of entrapment that is largely psychological and involves a lot of gaslighting and a lot of making the the victim or the survivor really confused about what is going on in this relationship because as we are trying to show in in the podcast there's love present 
and and we we forget that love is present. People are in love. This is their partner. Sometimes the father of their children, or you know, this is someone that has built up a deep connection with you. So the the forms of abuse that come later are really really hard to detect. Mm-hmm. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Georgina Savage all about the trap. It is a new podcast from the Victorian Women's Trust that explores love, abuse, and power. Georgina, there's a moment in one of the first two episodes where this exactly what you're describing is called a thousand little cuts. And I think that it's just so apt because, as you said, it is often a slow process. It's often comes after, you know, this love bombing where exactly there is love there. There is um, fondness. There's moments of joy, which is why I think it can be so confusing, as you said, for the victim or survivor to really kind of understand what it is they're going through. And as you also pointed out, um, and, and I think it's something that more and more people are starting to understand, domestic abuse doesn't have to have any kind of physical harm element to it, which again, is uh, it, it's it can be really hard to understand because I think for a long time, people have understood that if you if you punch someone in the, in the face, that's wrong. But if you're doing this kind of slow burn of psychological manipulation, it's a lot harder to detect. Um, and it makes it a lot harder to, yeah, to, to understand for the, um, the victim or survivor. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about the second episode, which really looks at uh, young people um, and, and children and how they're affected in this conversation. Because I think when a lot of people perhaps do think about domestic abuse and domestic violence, they probably think about somebody that's a little bit older, they might have kids, but as you speak about in this podcast, it's something that affects young people. It's something that affects children. Domestic abuse can actually come about, you know, in early adolescence when people are kind of learning to be in their first relationships. You talk about how it comes from this kind of deep sense of entitlement. I'd love if you can kind of talk a little bit about some of those root causes that you speak about in that second episode. Um, you, you do speak about private schools and, and the way that their kind of culture feeds into that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's so important to talk about young people because that's really where you're setting the tone of what you come to expect in relationships as you progress. But also it's kind of like this wild west of dating because you don't really know what you're getting yourself into. The feelings are so intense and therefore the kind of love bombing and the surveillance and the, you know, um, kind of insanity of of kind of unhealthy relationships can go undetected in early teenage relationships because a lot of adults in these people's lives or older people can write it off as being, oh, that's just young love, that's teen love. And I definitely don't want to take away from people's experiences of the first time of falling in love because it is really, really crazy and um, strange. But I will say that it's important for young people to really see the red flags that could be present because while their relationships may have an element of jealousy and, and, and some unhealthy aspects to it, which is kind of part of growing up and you have to learn for yourself. There are some things that you can learn are actually not okay and should never be okay. And there's lines that partners should never cross despite how young you are. Mm. Um, you know, and that has a lot to do with sexual abuse and it links into this concept of entitlement that you mentioned because the way that we're socialized from from birth, from 
the moment you know we are gendered in our society automatically creates an environment in which we are socialized one way or the other to feel that we need to perform for the opposite sex or that we're entitled to the opposite sex. And I think Chanel Contos, who is doing the um, amazing work of bringing in uh, consent education and sex education at a younger age into schools hits on something in the podcast when we interview her because she's talking about the danger of this socialization in women or young women seeing what is abusive and what is consensual when they've kind of been socialized to believe that they shouldn't enjoy sexual experiences, that their whole kind of purpose on this planet is to serve others. And that's that's felt, that's intrinsic. That's something you have to decolonize yourself out of as you mm-hmm. grow up as a as a woman. So and and you know, I think it's also important to mention that it's it's young boys that need to de-socialize themselves from the kind of trap of patriarchy that puts them in a position where they feel entitled to women, where they feel entitled to have power, where they feel angry at being with a powerful woman. You know, where they like it at first because it gives them some sort of sense of kind of attachment. But then over time, they systematically and um, coercively try to destroy her power because it actually threatens their sense of self. We need to ask and like ask questions and, and think about these issues for both young men and women to sort of deprogram mm-hmm. the socialization that's happening to them. Absolutely. And I think it's it's so interesting because I, you know, it's only the, the older that I've gotten that I've started to really kind of critically analyze and critically think about the ways in which I've been socialized and the ways in which I've been, you know, I mean, you use sex as an example, the ways in which we're taught about sex and, um, you know, and our pleasure and what that can look like. I'd love to kind of touch on that a little bit, particularly when it comes to sexual violence. I think it's something that people perhaps understand a little bit more. You know, you do touch on the concept of, of porn and how that, um, I suppose, plays out in the ways in which often young men can view sex and view women in relation to sex. Can you talk to that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're in such an interesting time when it comes to sexuality and porn and and this this kind of liberation, this sec- you know, waves of liberation that keep happening in which we don't want to be slut shaming, we don't want to be kink shaming, we don't want anyone to feel kind of boxed in in their sexual experiences. But at the same time, there's an undeniable impact that porn is having on young people and even, you know, not just teenagers, but people, you know, of all ages. Because if you listen to the uh, the second episode, we, we delve into this and we start to look at the statistics of how often uh, porn depicts women being degraded or actually hurt violently and if you create neurological pathways while you're, whilst you're watching mainstream porn that depicts violence against women every time, you are undoubtedly going to get turned on by that. That is just like going to happen. So if we're showing young people that this is sex, then they're not only getting turned on by that, but then expecting that in their sexual dynamics. There's going to be an issue because not only... Is that the sex they're expecting? But also young girls, young women, young people, sorry, are not taught necessarily that they should be enjoying sex. So it's very hard for them, and Chanel makes this point, very hard for them to figure out what is the consensual and non-consensual sexual experience. 
You know, if you're not taught that you should, your pleasure should be at the center of the experience, you're experiencing something that's unpleasurable, painful, awful. You think, oh, this is just what it is, right? Because mm-hmm. that's how we're learning about sex. And that's what we're, we're doing to, to young people. But not only just teenagers. I mean, in my own sexual experiences, and a lot of my male friends talk to me about this, that they feel kind of ripped off that they were, that they were taught about sex and sexualized into this kind of violent attitudes around treating women certain ways in bed, that now they have to deprogram and they look back at their sexual experiences with of their life and they, they have this immense guilt and shame around the things that they've done and the things that they've expected. And so I think this kind of revolution is good for everyone. And that means that when you're educated around sex and what is good sex and consent and communication, then you can go into the kink spaces. You can go into BDSM. You can go into role play and power play and, you know, um, that sort of thing in a way that's safe, consensual and enjoyable for both parties. Absolutely. I, yeah, I mean, I have had similar conversations with friends about sex education and, you know, I don't even think the clitoris was mentioned in sex education. It's like mm-hmm. it was all about male pleasure, how you'd not have a baby. Um, anyway, I am I hope that it's coming leaps and bounds. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've about to have to let you go, but um, just before I do, you know, there are two episodes out so far. I know that there's a bunch more. Can you talk a little bit more about um, what's in store for the rest of the season? Yes. So each episode will be coming out weekly on Thursdays and the next episode, episode three is fascinating. It's called, um, I'm pretty sure this is the title, Why Does He Do It? But it's all about perpetrators and it's hearing from perpetrators and it's really getting into the psychology of what it means to be an abuser and to come to terms with that. And I think that that is a pivotal episode in this series but then we hear obviously more about why women stay in these relationships really understanding the systems that don't let them leave um, and the consequences for leaving we look at kind of the police that that structure in itself we look at abolition as a concept we look at how do we change can we even change the institutions that are in place to protect us that are failing so badly or do we need to throw them all out? And we, we start to ask these hard questions and eventually get to the point where we're looking at government and power and, um, you know, really zooming out. So I, I would say you're going to be on quite a ride if you can stick with the series. And one more thing to take care when you do, because it, it is hard and it, it's grim in times, but um, it's really important. And I think it's, it's a really strong educational tool, this series. And as we've said, it's everybody's problem. Um, Georgina, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on your great work. Thanks so much. See you later. Bye. Just chatting there with Georgina Savage, who is the creative producer of The Trap. It's a new podcast out through the Victorian Women's Trust and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. If this interview did bring up any challenging feelings for you, please know that you can always call uh, the crisis support services that we have uh, in Australia, like Lifeline. You can call them for free at any time of the day or night on 13 11 14. You can also text them if phone calls are not your jam. There's also 1-800-RESPECT and yeah, you can check out The Trap wherever you get your podcasts. It is time for me to get out of here. I do want to say a big thank you to my guests today, Sarah Walker, for chatting to me about her new essay collection, The First Time I Thought I Was Dying. That went out through UQP. 
and just now chatting with Georgina Savage, talking all about the Victorian Women's Trust new podcast called The Trap. It is all about love, abuse and power. You can check that out wherever you get your podcasts from. Stay safe and do keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 